This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. I love to talk about uh, Black history, especially when we're able to hear about subjects and topics we've heretofore not talked about. And, you know, a lot of people get a little lazy. They always talk about the same historical figures, the same subjects, uh, much of which many of us know. The I Have a Dream speech was not the only event in black history. Not knocking the speech, but, you know, they just things. There's so many things we don't know about. And when we talk about black history, black history should encompass both throughout the African world or the diaspora. Uh, that includes the continent. Um, we're going to hear about a figure that many of us have not heard about before, but it's high time we do so. And especially these days, as we, I think all of us are moved to do more and um, learn more about the role of Black women in Black history throughout the world. And many, many times women were and have still been excluded. Um, and while they were alive, women weren't given the recognition they deserved. For example, I just mentioned that I have a dream speech. Um, women weren't allowed to speak. Mahalia Jackson sang. Lena Horne got one line. She shouted freedom. It was very powerful. She shouted, shouted freedom into the microphone Lincoln Memorial. But women have, have, who've always been the backbone of our movement around the world have not always gotten that recognition. And that is no different in Southern Africa. Uh, so many similarities. So we're gonna go uh, to, to Africa today and talk about uh, a figure, the, the author of our book that we're gonna discuss today comes from the region uh, in which we're kind of focused on today. She is the, an associate professor of African history at Stanford University. But this is her new book out just in time for this month, written out. We all know what that, that means to be written out. Written out, the silencing of Regina Galana Twala. Joelle Cabrita joins us on Make It Plain. Dr. Cabrita, join, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm doing very well, Reverend Mark. How are you? Just fine. It's a pleasure to, to have you with us. First of all, I do want people, we talked about it before we got started, but I want people to hear a little bit about your background. You are from Swaziland, correct? That is correct. Um, I, um, I, my parents moved there when I was just a young child. My mother, uh, who's now passed away, was South African, actually of Afrikaner heritage. So kind of this, this Dutch um, separate community in South Africa. Uh, my father is Portuguese and his family moved to Mozambique, which was a Portuguese colony until the 1970s. So my whole family on both sides are really, really part of this, this white settler community that has existed in Southern Africa for quite some time. And that made writing this book very, very personal because Regina Twala's experience of of racism in the region is something that I and the story of my family have been personally implicated in. So the, these are not, um, you know, these are not abstract topics for me. These, this is, this is close to my heart. 
Well, uh, tell us about her. Did 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 your family uh, have a relationship with her or know her at all? No. So by the time Twyla died in '68, um, you know this was kind of 15 years before my family would move to Aswatini. But uh, so Swaziland was renamed Aswatini about three years ago. Um, but I think what what kind of really resonates for me is the way in which Regina Twala was incredibly critical of the white settler community in Swaziland. Um, and Swaziland, I think, had always prided itself on being more progressive than neighboring South Africa on matters of race. So the, the racist segregation apartheid system um, never took hold in Swaziland in the way that it did in South Africa. That on paper, you could technically have more equality of the races. In practice, I think to be a black person, to be a black woman in Swaziland in the 50s and 60s was still incredibly challenging. Um, and Regina Twala had a lot of very harsh words to say towards white liberals in Swaziland who thought that they were more progressive, more advanced than you know these racist whites in South Africa who implemented apartheid. And she, she said, actually, you're, you're no different. Um, you don't allow you know, your black counterparts, real opportunities, you don't allow for progress. Um, you're actually still restricting opportunities, even while you're talking about your supposed liberalism. So I, I, I think there's a lot there that being part of this white community growing up in Swaziland um, rings true. And I, I, I recognize in her criticisms. So tell us about her role uh, in terms of education and, and her influence. So she is a remarkable woman who my book argues uh, really is one of the major figures of 20th century African history, um, who's been completely written out of history. And that's a topic that we can maybe come to a bit later. But she was, she was a pioneer. She pioneered and cleared the way for black women in, in multiple categories throughout her lifetime. She was highly educated in an era where black women were systematically denied education. She was only the second black woman to graduate from the University of Advantisrand in Johannesburg, which was then, and still is now, um, probably the most prestigious university in the country, maybe even on the whole continent. Um, she was the first black graduate in social sciences, which was a variety of anthropology and sociology. Uh, she was the author of multiple books. I have evidence from her letters, the papers she left behind, that she authored as many as five different book manuscripts. She was a prolific journalist. She wrote hundreds of newspaper columns and articles for press publications in South Africa, as well as in neighboring Eswatini. And in addition to being this really significant intellectual literary figure, which, uh, you know, just to stress, was so unusual for black women of the 20th century, until the 1960s, there's only a record of three books, that's one, two, three books ever being published by black female authors until the later decades of the 20th century. So to have someone like her, who is prolific and active in intellectual circles from as early as the 1930s, I think really begins to rewrite our history of what black literature in South Africa looked like and makes it clear that women like Twilight were actually much more significant than, than, are ordinarily, um, than is ordinarily assumed to be the case. So she was this kind of uh, intellectual figure, but she was also a, a political giant. Um, she, in the 1940s and 50s, became very active in the politics of the African National Congress, the ANC in South Africa, 
The racist apartheid government was voted into power in 1948. So black resistance really began to grow um, throughout the 50s. She was a close personal friend of both Nelson Mandela and um, his then wife, Winnie Mandela. Um, in fact, Nelson Mandela would represent her in her divorce case against her, her second husband. Her home in Orlando, Johannesburg, was near the Mandelas. And she became very involved in the Defiance Campaign, which was the largest nonviolent resistance movement that South Africa has ever seen. She was actually arrested for her role in the Defiance Campaign, spent some time in jail. And it was in response to this, this kind of worsening political situation in South Africa that she did what many black South African intellectuals and figures of the middle class did, which was she exiled herself. So she took the decision to move to neighboring Swaziland. Her husband was from Swaziland. She had a research grant, a very prestigious award that allowed her to conduct anthropological research in Swaziland. And so in her, in the mid fifties, when she was in her mid fifties, she, she moved to, you know, what was a new country for her and remained there until her death at the end of the 1960s. And it was then that the second chapter in her political life came and she transferred all of her determination to fight racism in South Africa into protesting against continued British colonial rule in Swaziland. And she argued um, amongst, um, you know, a company with many others that Swaziland should be independent. And she was one of the founding members of Swaziland's first political party in 1960. And she was really this, this kind of lone woman in meetings, settings, associations, always dominated by men. She was this lone woman arguing for the right of Swaziland to have self-determination and to exist as, a, as its own right in an in a, in a independent nation state form. So she, she is just this remarkable political, intellectual, literary um, pioneer um, who was you know, almost always the only women at the table in these very um, kind of patriarchal male-dominated societies. A, a powerful story and a powerful history. Tell us a bit about, well, first of all, we can't see her writings for the most part. Is that? Yeah, so... So I mentioned that she wrote as many as five different books, and I have evidence of this from her letters. And, you know, another remarkable fact about Regina Twala, she's left behind one of the most unusual and important archives of love letters that exists in African history, to my knowledge. So she and her second husband, Dan Twala, who was a significant sporting and cultural figure in his own right, they exchanged nearly 1,000 letters over a 30-year period from the 1930s until her death in the 60s. And together, these letters are a chronicle not only of their love life, but also of all the key political and cultural moments of the day. Um, and so she's left behind this really remarkable, truly unusual um, testimony or chronicle to her life. So in these letters, she talks about the book manuscripts that she's working on. The tragedy is that they've all been lost to us, all except one complete manuscript, which you know I can come to that in a moment and speak about that. But her, her publishing uh, career was a story of failure. It was a story of approaching publisher after publisher, both in South Africa, then Swaziland, then internationally, um, pleading for her work to be published, saying she, she, she wanted nothing more um, than it for to find an audience, but only to be turned down and rejected by publisher after publisher. 
So these manuscripts kind of languished in her home. And, you know, the way that personal archives work is that after the person's death, stuff gets lost. Family members don't necessarily realize how important or historically significant documents are. And unless you have someone who's really dedicated to keeping, keeping track of all these papers, stuff just goes missing. So all of her manuscripts, except one, have been lost to us um, due to the, the failure of the publishing industry to recognize the, the value and the importance of what was being placed before them. So it's a, it's a real tragedy in that respect. What we do have access to, though, in addition to this one surviving manuscript, uh, are all the columns and the articles that she wrote for newspapers. And one of the, the kind of most exciting bits of this project uh, was trawling through newspapers in South Africa and Swaziland and just the excitement of finding article after article after article written by Regina Twala uh, and in, in very famous publications. So you probably know about Drum Magazine, which was one of the most significant kind of cultural platforms um, for black culture in the 50s and 60s in South Africa. She was the women's correspondent for Drum Magazine. She ran an agony aunt column. You know, women would write into her with their love, love problems, um, their family problems, and she would give advice. So once you start looking, her kind of cultural imprint or her trace is, is, is sort of everywhere. It's just a question of someone who's been hiding in, in plain sight, and you just need to start looking for the traces of her. That, that's... Well, now, but you said these things are lost, uh, and and unfortunately, I, I get family. You know, when when people like that are amongst family, they don't always talk about themselves. And I know from personal experience, things uh, from my family that were done that I wish I had and knew about. You just kind of bump into them. You know, we as families don't say, "Hey, this is important. I wrote this. You should do something about it." This is not how families work. So. Uh, my advice to you, Joel, is to be sure to do that with your family. Don't do like <laughs> so we know where your things are. But um, you said loss, but the fact of the matter is, was there not to a large extent? And you alluded to this in terms of her publishing career, her ability to publish. Sounds like too there was some intentionality towards suppressing the powerful writings and influence of this woman. Absolutely. And that's why the title of my book is, is written out, uh, which is to say there was a very active process of erasing Regina Twala from history, from memory, from legacy, that this was not accidental, this was not coincidental, this was not just carelessness, this was, as you said, very deliberate, very intentional. And I think throughout her life, throughout her career, her powerful voice um, speaking in favor of justice, in favor of rights for women, in favor of rights particularly for black women, I think she offended and alienated a lot of people in power, and particularly people who held the reins or the keys to the publishing industry. So within apartheid South Africa, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard to imagine the way in which these printing presses, these publishing houses in the 40s and 50s, were controlled by white gatekeepers, many of whom had no desire to see an outspoken, politically radical black woman um, bring her work to print. Um, you know, I think the other part of the story is that throughout Twala's career, she had numerous relationships with white academics who were mentors and teachers and patrons and who were quite happy to support her career until she became a threat to them until she threatened to outstrip her role as a, as a student as, and as a mentee. 
And so, you know, some of the saddest cases of her work being blocked and erased comes from former teacher and mentors who you would expect to be supportive of her career, but in fact, who are very, sometimes very, the very same people who actually blocked her publishing. Um, so one example of this is a very well-known anthropologist called Hilda Cooper, who was a South African anthropologist who taught Regina when she was at Bits University. And on Regina's deathbed, um, she appealed to Cooper via an intermediary. Cooper was at this point working at UCLA here in the U.S. Um, and had access to um, University of California Press, who published some of her work asked her to try and secure publication of this final manuscript of hers um, as she was kind of on her deathbed. And, and Cooper blocked publication. Cooper said, you know, she thought there was absolutely nothing of value or interest in Twala's work um, and uh, effectively consigned the manuscript to the dustbin. And it's only when I was going through Cooper's archive some 60 years later that in this unmarked folder in one of the boxes with Cooper's writings, I discovered this manuscript by one R.D. Twala, which um, were Regina's initials. Um, and you know, the more I dug into the history of what had happened between Cooper and Twala, I realized this was not kind of an innocent act on Cooper's part, that she had effectively fallen out with Twala as Twala became more and more politically radical, more and more critical of the political views that Cooper herself held. And so her judging Twala's work to be of no intellectual benefit is actually kind of much more complex than just a, a judgment of value. Twala's work was also plagiarized by prominent European academics. Uh, a Swedish historian, again, very well known in his field called Bengt Sunkler, who wrote a lot on religion in Africa. He hired Twala to act as his research assistant in Swaziland in the 1950s. I worked my way through Twala's, uh, sorry, Sinclair's archives in Uppsala in Sweden, the university where he taught for many years. There I found dozens of, of research notes, research material that had been sent to him by Twala in the 1950s. And when I compared and matched up the research material that Twala had sent Sinclair versus the work that Sinclair had published as his own in his book, I found out that there were many passages that were near identical. So Twala's work hadn't been published under her own name, but it had been appropriated and stolen by a European academic and passed off as his own work. So this pattern of um, gatekeeping, exclusionary practices, outright theft, plagiarism, um, these are some of the, the kind of really nefarious mechanisms um, by which Twala's legacy has been all but erased to us and why she's unknown, but figures like Cooper and Beg Sinclair are celebrated as pioneering scholars in their respective fields. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Give us a glimpse of some of the topics she wrote about and took on that would make people want to erase her. And of course, you, you mentioned she was active with the African National Congress. I mean, that's self-explanatory what her political activity yeah. was. Yeah. But what would, but so you mentioned Cooper wouldn't, you know, put the manuscript in a dustbin. What was in that manuscript? So I, th- I think when it comes to Cooper, there's another dimension to Regina Twala's politics, which is when she moved to Swaziland, she actually took on two opponents. It wasn't just a case of um, speaking out against British colonial rule in Africa, which she did very strongly. It was also speaking out against the traditional Swazi monarchy um, that held power in Swaziland and that power would be fully transferred to when the British left. And Regina Twala was an advocate for democracy. So whether she saw the enemy as colonial rule or whether she saw it as traditional monarchy, in both cases, she felt that ordinary Swazi people were not actually being allowed the opportunity to express themselves freely. So when she moved to Swaziland, she started writing not only against colonial power, but also against this institution of Swazi monarchy that anthropologists like Hilda Cooper presented as the natural state of politics for Swazi people, that, that you know, Swaziland didn't need democracy in the way that Western nations needed democracy because they had their traditional king. And this was a point of view that many Swazi intellectuals and activists spoke up very strongly against, um, feeling that the role of the monarchy should be restricted and redefined into much more of a constitutional monarch along the lines of, of you know, what happens in the UK or places like that. Um, and, you know, if, if anyone's been following global news in the last few weeks, um, unfortunately, the same traditional monarchy that exerted such power in the 1960s still holds power today in Swaziland and still is exerting extremely repressive rule against its subjects and against its citizens. A leading political activist was just assassinated in his own home a couple of weeks ago. So there's really a climate of fear and repression in the country. There's no free press. There's nothing like free elections. It, it's, it's very hard to speak out on dissent against the king and against the monarchy. So Twala, as early as the 1960s, I mean, this is 60 years ago, took this on full-throatedly and was extremely critical of royal power, the power of this elite network connected to the king. And so she made herself no friends, both amongst colonial powers, but also amongst those kind of close to the the traditional um, clique of the day. And for anthropologists like Hilda Cooper, um, this was kind of blasphemy because Cooper thought, well, this is a traditional monarchy. These are supposedly traditional people. Um, Africans need a king. Kind of this very racist assumption that political rights that people in the West demanded and held on to somehow shouldn't also be applied um, to to subjects of countries in Africa. Not to mention, whatever traditional monarchies existed in Africa, most certainly were already undermined by colonialism. Absolutely. You can't really just go back and reset that clock once yeah. that's, that's already been corrupted. But that's that's a whole nother show. Isn't yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's a very inter- interesting perspective and very courageous of her to call that out. 
when when she did. Not surprised. She was a feminist too, wasn't she? She was absolutely a feminist, and I and I think women and women's rights were always at the forefront of her mind. You know, she she was never calling out these political systems purely kind of in principle or in theory. She was always calling them out for the way in which women suffered under these respective oppressive regimes. She was interested in the plight of black women in cities like Johannesburg, whom urban segregation, apartheid law, um, effectively drove out from cities. She was interested in the plight of women in Swaziland under this kind of repressive traditional system who weren't allowed to speak in public, who had no voting or inheritance rights in their own name. So she, she was always very, very attuned to kind of how women in particular experience life. And I think this was really born out of her own personal experience. You know, she, she was born and grew up as a woman in a century that was, that was hard for women. You know, she struggled to be educated. She struggled with um, two marriages, um, both of whom her husbands cheated on her, were kind of sexually unfaithful. And as a woman of the 30s and 40s, it was just expected that you would put up with this. That it was kind of breathtaking double standards in terms of sexual norms and morality. And she was brave. You know, she divorced her first husband. She lived separately from her second husband. And this was a period when it was incredibly taboo and stigmatized um, to kind of speak up and object to what your husband was doing. Um, and she was just very, very outspoken on, on the fact that just because she'd born, been born a woman didn't mean that she was entitled to any less rights or independence than, than a man. So really a ahead of her times, I think, in, in quite a startling way. Yeah, no, that's important. And people, you know, a lot of times we take things for granted now, but uh, Joelle is right, folks. Uh, Professor Cabrita is right. Uh, women weren't supposed to get divorced. You weren't supposed to do that. You weren't, you know, and that's true in South Africa in this country as well. So, you know, even as late as the 60s, that's just, no, that's just not something you, you did. It was taboo, even amongst, you know, peers. Divorce, you're supposed to just stay there and stick it out. So, no, that, that was quite revolutionary. Is it, any members of her family still around? Is there any interest in currently, today, in, in Iswatini, any type of movement bubbling up to uh, restore her? back to history? Well, her, her family have been immensely supportive and generous of my biography and of my interest um, in, in, in their grandmother um, from the very beginning. So, you know, I, I owe her an absolutely massive debt to them. And I think they've really seen this biography as, as precisely that, a way to kind of revive her legacy, a way to make the case in Swaziland and more broadly, that this is an important woman who deserves some kind of audience. Um, Twala had one child who very sadly died early in a car accident, but he has a surviving daughter who's um, Regina Twala's granddaughter, and she's been um, kind of uh, a mentor to me and a guide to me in terms of um, telling the story of her grandmother. We're actually planning um, some launch events in Swaziland uh, in June or July in, in our summer. But as I mentioned, the political climate actually makes this quite difficult. Um, you know, this is still um, very sensitive politically to memorialize, commemorate, celebrate a woman who was so critical of the monarchy and her own political views. And so one of the things that we're having quite careful discussions about is how exactly we can 
kind of restore her to her rightful place in Swazi history when her politics were still and are still so troublesome to the powers that be. So I, I think it might be a case of possibly doing more in neighboring South Africa where these kinds of dissenting views can be voiced more clearly. But, you know, for those who live in Swaziland, and I certainly wouldn't want to endanger them or, or, or kind of make them vulnerable in any way, I think it's, it's quite difficult to have these conversations openly. So sadly, her, her kind of political vision is just as relevant today as it was 60 years ago. No, that is very important and, and the great service you're doing um, in, in terms of getting her story out uh, and sharing her story. You mentioned her position on the monarchy. I, I, any other positions that she took which really stand out and are really were perhaps even prescient for today? Well, I think, um, you know, the other part of her writing career that, that I love because it's, you know, it's a little bit lighter and it, it, it gives us a glimpse into a very different human, more personal side of hers, that she was also an agony aunt. Um, you know, I mentioned that she wrote this column for Drum Magazine. She wrote similar columns for other publications. And so she actually wrote a lot about sex and love and relationships and, you know, how to negotiate these things as, as a modern woman. Um, and she was just incredibly frank on sexual matters in a way that I think would be, have been considered really, really challenging for the day. She said that women should receive sex education, that they should know about kind of the, the biology of all of it, because women needed to be empowered with information. She said that women should feel free to speak out against philandering unfaithful men, that they shouldn't kind of just sit, sit still and, you know, take what's dished to them. So it, uh, kind of her sexual politics, I think, and her recognition of the need for women to seek out education and emancipation in the bedroom as much as in the voting booth um, really made her a startling figure for a very, very conservative society. You know, I mean, there's still places today in the 2020s that would find this kind of frankness on female sexuality um, disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. So she was ahead of her time in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah. In that regard too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so folks, the book is is out. We invite you to check it out. And again, we we all do well to enlighten ourselves about figures in our history that we otherwise would would not know about. Uh, and Joelle Cabrita has given us an opportunity to do this, to hear about uh, Regina Galana Twala. I'm always uh, inspired by the um, role that revolutionary women played in Southern Africa. In fact, whenever I speak to um, women's groups, Joelle, especially women who are, who are activists, I remind them of what the women in South Africa used to say to the apartheid regime. Uh, now you have touched the women, now you have struck a rock. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, it seems to me that in her time, Regina Galana Twala was, was one of those rocks, wasn't she? She was a rock of the revolution, absolutely. I think that's a really beautiful way of putting it. And you mentioned she knew the Mandelas. 
She did know the Mandalas. So her house in Orlando Township, which was a, a residential part of Johannesburg, was just a few streets down from the, the Mandalas. Um, she actually attended the same, um, before her time at the university, she did a diploma in a school of social work. Uh, that was the same school of social work that Winnie Mandela would later, a few years um, afterwards, go on to qualify at. She was involved in many of the same church circles uh, and then later kind of in the same political circles. Uh, Mandela represented her in her divorce case against her second husband. So she was really part of the same kind of network of politically active, um, you know, fairly elite middle class Black Johannesburg, the mm -hmm. kind of the thinkers, the journalists, the lawyers, the social workers um, of their day who would, you know, go on to form such a strong wall of resistance to the way in which the apartheid state was trying to erode and dismantle their rights as, as humans, as South Africans. So, so last, I just want to be clear. Mm -hmm. It is, and you're, you're meeting with the granddaughter in dialogue with the family. Mm -hmm. You know, it is... Are there there works that are recoverable? Are there manuscripts that that are recoverable so that at some point we might get a trove of Regina Galana Twala works to see? You know, that is my hope. And I should say that when I first started out on this project, my goal was not to write um, Twala's biography. My goal was actually to bring to publication this manuscript of hers, the sole surviving intact manuscript that I discovered buried in Hilda Cooper, the anthropologist's archives uh, in UCLA Library. And, you know, after I had conversations with a couple of publishers, the response was, this sounds really interesting, but this is a totally unknown figure. No one has ever heard of this woman. So we have concerns about marketability if, if we choose to publish this manuscript. So the advice I received from one publisher, which, you know, I think was, was good advice was, why don't you start out and write her biography and then her name can get a bit of traction, a bit of recognition. And then in that, in time, that might open up the opportunity for her, her own work to be published. And for me, you know, that's kind of my, my ultimate goal that Twella finally speaks for herself. Because I am, you know, I'm sensitive to the dynamics of being yet another white scholar, yet another white academic in Twala's life, who is still, in a sense, kind of gatekeeping and managing access to her life and to her legacy. And this is not a case of a woman who, who didn't say anything, who didn't leave behind a written record of her life. You know, she wrote, she wrote plenty. Um, so, so for me, the ultimate win, the ultimate triumph is for Twala's own words to finally find a platform for publication and for her to be read as widely as possible in terms of what, what she says about herself, not only what I say about herself, because those stories will look, you know, quite, quite different. Um, so yes, absolutely. That, that is definitely, um, the goal to get her work published. And, and that's appropriate. And you, you're a principal person. I can tell that. Uh, and humble. Uh, but I agree with that advice. I mean, we need to know her story. Yeah. Uh, and this is why I take off my interview ahead and put on my movement hat and see you in California. That's so right. I, already, I already see a movie. Into the movie. <laughs> no, really. And I was just reading something the other day. You know, there's this, on one hand, people say there's, there's a, Netflix has created an oversaturation. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there are a lot of, of, of stories being brought to film that otherwise never would have been brought to film, right? And, and I think we have to take advantage of that. And especially films about subjects and characters, not just in the United States. I, I think that's, yeah, 
I, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, there is something kind of uh, cinematic about her life. And, and, you know, the fact that her 60 years on Earth spanned one of the most kind of turbulent, politically important periods in human history that, you know, she lived through the rise and the fall of apartheid. And she, she lived in the period that saw many African countries going from being colonies to coming into their own independent statehood. Um, so there's no doubt about it that her times, her times were big times. You know, there's there's a kind of very dramatic um, scope or flavor to the time that she, she lived throughout. She was also, um, you know, she was also a very very striking woman in terms of her her appearance. And one of the lovely things um, is that I have many black and white photographs in the book that were preserved in all of these letters, this personal archive of letters that she had with her husband. There's also hundreds of photos, many more than I've been able to include. And just the sort of visual insight that these photographs give us into these kind of very intimate corners of black life in South Africa during apartheid are, are just fantastic. I mean, there are photos of she and her husband swimming uh, in swimming suits on the beach, uh, going for drives, going for walks, hugging each other um, out and about in town. So it, it, it's just this really lovely, intimate, informal, um, kind of literally snapshot of, of what their lives were like. And she was, a, you know, she was many things. She was a serious intellect and political activist, but she was also a, a very beautiful, um, stunning woman. Um, so I, I can just think of all the film stars who oh, yeah. recruit to play her. Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be great. And, and one other thing, she was also... Uh, um, a religious person too, wasn't she? She was absolutely a religious person. So she was um, she was raised and grew up in the Methodist faith in South Africa, and then in later life, uh, in her fifties, she gravitated more towards Pentecostal Christianity. So, um, interestingly, a form of Christianity in South Africa that was led by a very outspoken black church leader called Nicholas Bangu, who was known as the Billy Graham of Africa who had this huge popular following and who was very, very outspoken on the role of black pride within the Christian church and saying, we've been dictated to for far too long by missionaries and we need to come up with genuinely African ways of being, of being Christian. And so for him, Pentecostal Christianity with this emphasis on the spirit, the gifts and the fruits of the spirit um, was a much more kind of locally appropriate way of being Christian. And Regina Twala really, really threw herself into this full, um, fully. And she was actually one of the figures who negotiated the introduction of this Pentecostal church to Swaziland uh, in the 1960s. And when she died, um, the moment of her death, she was actually surrounded by a group from the church who were, who were praying for her. So going back to your earlier question about memorializing her in Swaziland, I think that's definitely a community who would love to have her, her memory kind of raised up um, as a pioneer of the church as well as of politics. Outstanding. Folks, written out the silencing of Regina Galana Twala, an incredible story. Let's learn more about those about whom we know not so much about. Our very special guest has been African history professor at Stanford, uh, Joel Cabrita. And so, so this is, your class is going to read this book? The poor, poor, poor students. I will, I will encourage them to read the book. 
Um, okay. And I know a couple of my colleagues have been, you know, very generous already and yeah. assigned it to their classes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there just aren't that many stories like this. I mean, the That's number right. of full-length biographies of Black African women is yeah. shockingly small. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a real gaping hole in our knowledge. Folks, um, the, the things we are inclined and inspired to do to bring more women into the forefront must also include, include those who are written out of history. Um, and this is a very important story. I'm going to share with all of, of my friends, especially those in the womanist and feminist movement. Um, and, and frankly, you know, what you shared with us about the way she is, which was treated in academia. Hmm. Uh, I know some folk going through that kind of stuff today. Absolutely. Some things yeah. have not changed. So yeah. these stories can enlighten us for today uh, and empower us today as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of that, that kind of stuff too. So, Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So yeah. this in and of itself is, is empowering even today. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I wanted to, to have our guest on and, and share this book and read this book and share this story. So this is this is great. Professor Joel uh, Cabrita written out the silencing of Regina Galana Twaller. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to speak about Regina Twaller's life with you and your listening. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.